Welcome to the Aquas Podcast, conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello and welcome to the Equest podcast. It's July 2020 and we are slowly starting to emerge from our COVID-19 hibernation. One of those emerging from hibernation is the wonderful Martina Kelly. Martina is an ex-colleague of mine from the Central Bank of Ireland and somebody who I've been keen to have on the podcast for a long time. Now, until the end of 2019, she was working in the Central Bank of Ireland, so she quite sensibly declined my offers to a guest on the podcast but as of the start of this year 2020 she's free of those shackles uh, now being the director of funds at the institute of banking so as she emerged hazy from the COVID-19 lockdown I managed to nab her and convince her that this was the time to participate on the podcast and thankfully she said yes so we've had a very wide-ranging conversation about all things from the beginnings of the funds industry in Ireland, the regulators' approach to it, their kind of collaborative uh, uh, view of the world as they worked with others in industry and other regulators to kind of get a footing in the funds world, right up to the present day and some of the challenges that fund management companies particularly are going to face around things like substance and the CP86 review. We also talk about uh, things like tips for how firms can better engage with the regulator, be more effective in their uh, in their engagements, get an outcome that's more around what they're looking to do. So there's tons of content in this one, lots of hints and tips for firms as they deal with the regulator on a day-to-day basis, but also lots of nuggets from back in the days of the early uh, origins of the funds industry here in Ireland. As always, my, ca- my co-host is Shannon Eastman. Uh, Shannon is a behavioral specialist. She's a communications expert, management consultant, and lots of other things. Check out shannoneastman.com to find out what they are. So now, on with the podcast. Hope you enjoy it. And by the way, uh, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast. It's available through aquest.ie and also through pretty much every podcast channel available in the world. So if you hit the subscribe button there, you'll be notified when we have new podcasts dropping. Okay, that's enough for me. Let's get on with the podcast. For this episode of the Equest podcast, I'm very, very pleased to be joined by an ex-colleague and current director of funds at the Institute of Banking, Martina Kelly. I also have the wonderful Shannon Eastman, shannoneastman.com, to check out all of the things that Shannon tells us she's wonderful at, uh, on the podcast, my regular co-host. Great to have you, Shannon. Thank you. I'm excited about this one. It's going to be good. It is going to be good. Yeah. Martina, thank you very much for joining us on the Equest podcast. You're very welcome, Danny. I'm looking forward to it. Well, you and I, Martina, are both enthusiasts, and I know that you're delighted Kildare are going to be in the championship. <laughs> like I me. actually had a conversation about that just earlier today, saying maybe it would have been as well if they didn't have one this year, but there you go. Well, Maybe the, maybe the knockout will suit us, the knockout approach. Uh, it's the only chance that either of our counties have of getting that late into the championship. <laughs> uh, knockout. I guess. I'm happy enough to get beaten once a year rather than, I think we got beaten four times in championship last year and I didn't feel any better for it. So, <laughs> great to knock out is good for me. Uh, so, Martina, we, as I said, you used to work together in the Central Bank of Ireland. Your career as a regulator uh, was longer than mine, I think it's fair to say. 
tell us about how you how you ended up at the central bank uh, and how your career began there. Okay, interesting. Um, that brings me back. So I joined the central bank straight from school, and uh, it was a very very different organisation at the time. Uh, Ireland was a different place, by the way, at the time. I we were probably in the midst and, and depths of a recession. Um, but of course, when you're young you and you're working, that doesn't mean anything. We didn't know. We lived in a recession, I, I'm fairly sure. Um, it was an absolutely fantastic place to work. Um, great colleagues. And the, the people I started working with then are still my friends today. I worked in what was government loans. Um, because the central bank held the register for, for government stocks and securities. And there was a lot of admin and you know, work related to dealing with the investors in those um, securities. And I worked also in the dealing area because the central bank held the dealing desk for the short-term securities. And how are you a trader, Martina? <laughs> And my mother used to think, and my father actually, uh, addressed him, thought it was brilliant that I was, yeah, a trader. I wasn't really. In <laughs> fairness, I uh, attended the Exchequer Bill tender, and, um, but it was, you know, very low level what I was doing. But really interesting, and I suppose it was the first time uh, it brought me into um, contact, if you like, with securities, and uh, albeit government securities in this case, but you know, getting to know the, the, the intricacies of, of securities and uh, the valuation of them. And was the, uh, was the central bank the financial regulator as well? Or were no, 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 no. Uh, it was, well, uh, sorry, that's wrong. I mean, it regulated banks, okay? Um, but there was no financial services regulation other than banks at the time, I'm fairly sure. Because there's nobody else to regulate, probably. Well, pretty much, yeah. I mean, there was no uh, investment, uh, the ISD, which, which predated MIFID. There was no ISD at the time, so investment services wasn't subject to regulation. And there were funds, but they were unitrust and they were regulated by the current, uh, or, or what was then the version of the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. Uh, and there were probably, yeah, there were, there were industry and commerce at the time. So, so, so I imagine right. the, the you know when, when when the funds industry idea rolled around, I imagine it being the story when when CP eighty six started. Martin called me into his office. This is Martin Maloney, who was the head of MPD, Marcus Policy and Central Bank. Called me into the office on a Friday afternoon and said, "I've got this great opportunity for you." Uh, and of course, when you hear something like that, you know you're, <laughs> it's not a great opportunity at all. <laughs> you should turn. <laughs> And I wonder when, when so, did somebody call you into the office and say, we've got this great idea for... <laughs> Wonderful the, question. Wonderful the investment question. funds industry. I actually uh, was promoted and my posting, if you like, was to the new financial sector department because the IFSE had started, uh, what, 1987? But when I moved there, so I moved up um, and by... By the way, I was informed beforehand that I would be working with users. I said, what? <laughs> and it was like, what? It's the most stupid name ever. Users, what are they? And I remember a colleague giving me uh, an article in Finance Dublin on said users. 
And it was like reading Dutch. I had no idea. So Did you at least pronounce it properly? I'm sure I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> I got very annoyed, as you know, in, in, in the years to follow when people called them uppets and stuff like that. But, um, or didn't, you know, assumed the usage and not use it. But anyhow, that's, that's a digression. Um, I moved then into the well, what's the financial sector department. But when I moved, right, the IFSE had started to get going, and particularly into the, in the context of funds, because the first set of usage regulations had been passed, and the first usage notices, the central bank notices, had been published. And I think there would have been one fund authorised at the time. So... I did feel, uh, I didn't feel great, you know, because I knew nothing and felt like I knew nothing. But I really was able to learn from those who had been involved in that work. And there was a relatively small team dealing with all financial uh, sector um, supervision, not just funds, obviously. But, you know, the full department, if you like, was quite small. Um, with, with one fund and a set of usage notices and as a regulator I guess not an awful lot of experience of what this was all about did you have any sense for what it might become was that even discussed was it you know, or was it even too, too big to discuss you just sort of get on with it um, well there's a couple of things I mean first of all um, as I said when I, when I moved there I was able to, to learn from those who had been there even for that short time right and immediately there was a really really strong can-do attitude and there was a great interest and engagement in what was going on and because obviously there was a lot of inquiries not just in funds but in the other potential financial services that might be carried out um, in the IFSE as well Um, and so if you take it I've been working as had the others, right? Because in most cases, the, the, the staff, if you like, in this area had moved from other areas in the bank. And up to that, I'd been dealing predominantly with nationals, right? And now I had this exposure to the international sector from the fund promoters um, and other regulators and then the legal firms representing the, the, the fund promoters. So that exposure, that was a huge change for me personally, and I assume for everybody else. Um, but the central bank, um, okay, had, had received the mandate. It would oversee and supervise the activities that would go on in the IFSC. Um, but those that moved, I suppose, you know, from, from other areas into that new activity, regulating international financial services, there was a huge interest in what was emerging, you know, what proposals we were seeing, and a huge interest to get the regulatory regime just right. And then in the case of funds, I think in fairness, it was always about the investor. That culture sort of permeated because, you know, when I look back now, I, re- I can see that, if, if you follow me. My boss was, was Willie Slattery, um, and I think you know him, Johnny, a bit anyhow. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, he... He really fought me an awful lot. But from him and from others, there was that strong sense, a great belief in what we were doing, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I guess that must have been the cornerstone on which the 
the whole revolution was built, the industry was built where you had a regulator that, that wanted to learn more, wanted to understand, and wanted to protect investors and a good job in that, and was, but was open to learning and, and engaging and, and um, rather than kind of shutting down and, and only doing the minimum. Well, you see, that's the thing. I suppose when you move into that sort of like greenfield area, um, we had lots and lots to learn. And we needed to learn it quickly. So we sought to learn from those with existing industries. And I'm there I'm talking particularly about the UK and Luxembourg um, in, the, in the case of the EU. And then outside the EU, we would have looked a lot at what the SEC did. And we looked at places like Hong Kong, places who had um, or which had developed rule books. Um, and places where we could engage with the authorities, uh, that they were willing to do that and that they're, they seem to have well-developed policies. Um, but I think maybe, look, it's probably important to remember that the central bank was just far smaller then. It was far less complex than it is today. So it was easier for the senior managers, the people we reported to, to engage with their different areas. It was, I think that probably makes sense. Um, and there's one other thing, you know, you mentioned, you know, the bank um, and its attitude, but it wasn't even just the bank. I mean, it was the government, the industry uh, and the central bank. There was um, a strong sense of working together in terms of, of the centre and, and structures like the IFSE Funds Working Group. I mean, that has survived to today, but structures like that really helped a lot. Um, for us to learn. I guess there's a unity of purpose then where everybody's kind of pulling in the same direction with different interests, but, but pulling in the right, in the same direction. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, most and so how long did it take then from kind of the first fund to, to building up a bit of scale and, and getting a sense that, you know what, this might actually work. We might actually really be a dom- an important domicile for investment funds. Um. Well, I suppose it's a bit like having children, right? I mean, one day they're tots and the next day they're kind of stroppy teenagers. And so the number of funds continued to grow. But we were still babies, if I continue that analogy, when comparing, you know, Ireland and predominantly Dublin then to Luxembourg, for example, and others. Um, At the time, I think there was a lot of engagement trying to ensure that all aspects, and I'm going to talk about funds here, that all aspects of funds regulation, so the authorization, the supervision, and if you like, um, developing policy, there was only one team to do all of that, naturally, um, as the fund numbers were small. So um, one key thing, I think, at the time was ensuring a proper recording of all precedent material. Right, good record keeping, recording our decisions. Um, so all of that was going on, and there was kind of little time to sort of stand back and and see assess the future. We were just so focused on the present and ensuring we were doing all the things that we needed to do. Um, and and don't forget as well, Danny. At the time, um, we had fund administrators. And we had depositories. Now, they weren't authorised. At that time, we had no IIA, for example, in relation to fund administration. 
but they were still subject to supervision and regulation by the bank and the bank had to impose conditions on their activities. So, uh, I don't, so it's important to remember we didn't have the technology. We had no internet for research purposes. We didn't have email. Yeah, I better not go on actually. But. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving the game up. I think, think I'm a dinosaur, but I mean, there wasn't those things. So you have to remember it was a very different, different world. And what were the big yeah. wins then, kind of the early days? Do you remember something that was like a milestone or a big win or something that kind of uh, yeah. passed over um, and said, you know what, we're kind of, we're gone from, we can walk now, we've gone from crawling around, we can kind of walk and know what we're doing. Yeah, I think maybe a couple of things um, are relevant. First of all, I think we realised very soon, not very quickly, but, you know, I would say in the early years that we were becoming a hub for professional funds. Um, and we would hear things like, you know, retail would still tend to go to Luxembourg, but that increasingly the professional funds were coming to Dublin. And there's, I think there's a reason for that. Um, because we had the culture, if you like, was a willingness to meet and listen to proposals. It was a very strong culture. And we had very good relationships with US promoters in particular, who really liked that approach. Um, and of course, English speaking, that was a very strong thing for them. But um, that was really good for us to listen, because how else can you learn, you know? And it wasn't that we were just saying, yeah, oh, it's fine. I mean, it was interrogate, challenge, but listen and be prepared to listen. Um, we had to learn, as I said, to, to your earlier question. And in addition to speaking to other regulators and looking at other regimes, obviously you learn a lot by listening to the industry. So, um, so that was one thing. I think another thing which I, I, I recall in, you know, after again a few years was uh, how others in other jurisdictions were now looking to us for guidance where we had looked to the jurisdictions I mentioned earlier. And I always thought, you know, so it's particularly smaller um, jurisdictions in the EU and even outside the EU would ask us for some guidance on th problems that they had encountered in their work. And I always thought that was in our interest to be helpful to others and not just because it's a national trait, right? I mean, somebody asks for your assistance, your, your immediate response, I think, as an Irish person, probably to say yes if you can. Um, but it was also important because it helped us to build relationships um, and to be able to explain why we thought our policy was the right one, if you, if you follow me. Yeah. So that was really important. And then did, did were you guys then involved in things like IOSCO and Caesar, which is the precursor to ESMA? Was that part of the yeah, mandate, but, part of the approach? You, you were always... To absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And um, thanks to, you know, um, very able people, and I mentioned Willie and there were others, who with, you know, their Department of Finance counterparts would attend European meetings. Um, we were growing in our ability to influence um, so that we were being increasingly looked to by counterparts obviously as the regulation continued to develop but also not just you know the regulators but maybe bodies like the european commission um, and i personally think that a lot of 
you know, the good engagement we had there was because we generally tended to be quite open and transparent about, you know, what our objectives were. Um, and I think people felt they could engage with us because we were interested in an outcome which, again, focused on investors, but also recognizing, you know, the issues faced by the, the, the fund service providers. And so I, I think that was really important. And so you were um, on the ESMA Investment Management Standing Committee for, uh, for a number of years. Were you involved in CESA then before ESMA? Yes, so sorry, I didn't, I didn't answer that. What, what you had at the beginning, actually, was um, a contact group. And the contact group was replaced. That was sort of a usage contact group, right? Well, there was no AIFMD at the time. And that usage contact group was the legislator and the regulator. So you had the department, and I think it was Enterprise Trade and Employment and Central Bank on the contact group. And the meetings were in Brussels. And then Caesar uh, set up the IMEG, what's well, Investment Management Expert Group. Well, I don't think I'd remember that, but I did. <laughs> were and they in Paris was, as well? <laughs> no, uh, that's the funny part. Um, that was chaired by Italy from the beginning. And I think we're talking 2004-ish. I'm, I'm fairly sure it was around then. And that, no, those meetings were in Italy. But now it was just the regulator if you like. So pretty much the regulators who had sat on the uses contact group moved to become the members of the IMEG. And that worked pretty much the way in which ESMA works today. Um, quite similar. So, yes, how, many, uh, how many times do you think you've been in Paris over the last <laughs> well, at the time, you could have asked me how many times I've been in Italy, because that, Italy held the chair for very many years uh, until our Garrett Murphy took it over. Um, That's right. You would have been in the bank at the time. Yeah. So how uh, many times was I in Italy, and it wasn't always the easiest place to get to, because meetings were either in Rome or Milan. Um, and oftentimes, you know, it was a longer journey. So actually, when when... ESMA came along and meetings were held in Paris. That was actually quite good for me because the travel time was much reduced. So how many times in Paris? I've absolutely no idea. A lot. But yeah. that, that travel, whether it's, you know, it's, it was Italy or it was uh, or it's Paris or it's IOSCO, which is more international again, it loses its uh, attraction by, quite quickly. But it is terribly important to be physically at those meetings, to be there, to build the bridges and the connections and the understanding that you have with other regulators and then the ability to pick up the phone to them if it's something they've done that you want to kind of pick their brains on or, or, or a promoter from their jurisdiction or something like that. Those relationships are incredibly important, albeit it's hard work to do it. Do you think now in this COVID world and we're all doing Zoom meetings that... Um, they'll kind of get replaced by technology or do you think you're just going to still have to jump on planes and, and be there in person? Um, well, I always thought and couldn't understand why we could not do more meetings remotely, particularly if they were of the working group type. Um, and I absolutely agree about the face-to-face, -face, but just to, I mean, I remember many years ago having a meeting with a manager because, again, as I said she at the outset, we liked to speak directly to the investment managers, 
to to understand exactly the proposal rather than coming through a legal firm but you, you understand what i'm saying and i remember having this visual or this video meeting with some guy who was based i think in russia and i said why are we going why can't we do this because the technology worked and it's not today or yesterday I said, why can't we do more of this uh, in the context of the european meetings and um, because it's a huge financial um a cost huge uh, so not just in terms of people's time, but it is really expensive. So I couldn't understand why we did. And I don't think um, conference calls, and I think you've probably sat in on some of those, Johnny, work the best. But a visual meeting, uh, a video meeting where, you know, you still have people using their flags to indicate when they want to speak, it could work really well. But of course, you're right, you do need a face-to-face um building the relationships with your colleagues is as important as knowing you know the, the agenda items and being able to speak to those when you are there and, and you must do that um you know you will always be expected when you're a, a big jurisdiction you, you know you you must be able to speak to all of the agenda items it's not possible not to if that makes sense yeah, I, that's right. And I think I think that now the impetus is there and everybody's kind of used to using technology for meetings. I think that that will be, we'll be smarter about how Zoom and tech, you know, virtual meetings are done. They'll be more focused and they'll be more efficient than they would have been. And, mm-hmm. and I think they won't, they won't replace everything, but I think you're right about replacing working groups. And I think there won't yeah. be an assumption that we've all got to jump in the same location to do this meeting. I think it'll be much more uh, selective in the meetings that are done yeah. person and the Zoom ones are the virtual ones be a bit more. So that means, yeah, and that means you might have to work a little bit harder um, to build the relationships because your opportunities for, for grabbing someone to go for a coffee will be less possibly, but, you know, you can still do it and you can, of course, have, you know, your own bilaterals. Bilaterals with people are really important. Um, so you have to have the ability to do that. Um, and build those relationships. So you're going to get support for your your positions, particularly when the person may not have a major national interest. But you know, if you were got that relationship, you may be able to ensure that they they support you, you know, yeah. on the issues that they're they're neutral on. And of course, with the UK outside of the tent, and or you know, we've mm. less of a natural ally there. That and we've got to probably work harder on on building relationships with others. I know, I, I think that, you know, I was actually in, in London the day of the Brexit vote or the day when it was announced and I, I was actually quite emotional because I just thought it was so sad. Um, <laughs> it's even sad for me. I was going to miss those people who we'd worked so well together and had very common areas of interest. And, you know, I think, and I'm sure this was your experience as well, but the people from the FCA, et cetera, that sat on groups, they were very committed and they were by and large easy to work with. Um, and they were very articulate, you know, uh, and I, I always thought they, they performed very strongly. I think they those meetings. It. Yeah, I think they got it. They had, I think it, we worked well with them because we kind of complemented what they did, you know, and are culturally and all that very similar um 
and it was a, a, a good alliance or a good you know ally to have and they were very good because they knew their stuff they were well prepared they were well briefed um and you could kind of depend on them they, they didn't usually come out with stuff that was off the wall they were you know they were sensible well, actually, when, in the early days, when I did go to, to the Usage Contact Group, and again, and I'm talking about the really early days when, you know, didn't know that much, um, I'm learning all the time. I would always want the UK to speak on a topic. Um, you know, if I could support them, it was a lot easier for me. Um, yeah. And, the, and the, they knew their stuff. They had an industry and they knew the topics. Um, but again, it was it was uh, it wasn't just the fact that they would, as I say, perform strongly, but they were good allies. You know, if you reached out to them, generally you got a good response. You know. So, so tell me, over important. time, then, sorry, Regina, the, it, obviously as the as the industry grew, the regulators' resources on funds grew. Um, you went from being one team of authorization, supervision, and policy up amongst several different team, teams. How did you end up down the policy road then compared to uh, one, of the other, one of the other areas for funds? Especially um, nerd. <laughs> I guess it was always my area of interest, but it, it sort of came naturally because, as I said at the beginning, very small team doing everything. So I did do all the international work and you know, policy flow, you know, flowed from that. And it was something I think I'd napped too far and enjoyed, immensely enjoyed. So um, notwithstanding, you know, particularly when children are small, this can be more difficult. But that's really why I went that route and stayed on that route, if you like. And uh, the, uh, the other thing, of course, is that it's never, ever boring. There's always something new. I mean, I know we look at what's happening today and there's so much change and so many things coming down the tracks but it was always like that it's just now that the rate has upped in in recent years but it was always like that uh, there was something coming so it was always interesting always interesting and now Martina you can answer this question for me now that you're outside of the organization <laughs> probably won't so <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it there was a period, and I don't know if it still is there, I don't think so, where it seemed like the acronyms for the different areas changed on a very frequent basis. And sometimes funds of policy were together and sometimes policy was with other policy. And uh, do, Did you have a, a view on or a view now on the best way to slice and dice authorization, supervision and policy from when they're better together and they're better divided or does it really matter? If you had asked me before, when we were sort of an integral part of the authorization supervision area, I would have said, no, we're fine. Uh, we're close to the people who are doing the job and we need to be close to it. We need to know um, what's going on in order to do a good job, right? And then obviously we became part of the bigger policy area and having that experience I was wrong. I think it's far better to have um, policy within a broader policy area because funds is part of asset management, right? Um, but also the entities involved 
the issues that they face are similar to the issues that are faced by any uh, financial services entity. Um, and there should be a common approach. I mean, it's about the activity, right? So there should be a common approach to things um, like authorizations and supervision and so on. So getting that much broader perspective, I think, was really helpful for us. And I think, I think we upped our game, actually, um, because we had all of that influence, if you like, from other policy people. So I think that's, if you, if you ask me in the morning to sort of organize our uh, funds team, that's pretty much what I would say and do. It's a very politically correct answer, Martina. It may be, but I know I genuinely, <laughs> I genuinely believe that. Um, if you recall, we, we, we moved and Martin was our boss and we had all the markets area in, in the division. Yeah. I, think, I think that really, as I said just now, I think that made us up our game. So I think it was very good. I'm curious to find out what happened in the aftermath of Brexit and all the funds uh, moving into Ireland and what that was like and did you see it coming? But I don't want to jump the conversation, but as she brought up Brexit, she was sad. And I wonder how long you had to be sad because didn't the landscape here in Ireland shift almost immediately in the following three to six months? with applications and firms moving over? Well, I'd ask that question a little bit because what happened very shortly after Brexit was, of course, the ESMA Brexit opinions, Martina, particularly the one on asset management and the reference to uh, at least three full-time equivalents in a, in a fund management company, and that had a big impact, um, don't you think? It did. So it probably took a little bit longer um, to materialize. So we were seeing a lot of interest, right? But in the context of funds, um, it wasn't, I mean, people were trying to work out what would be the best way for them to organize themselves. You know, would there be a deal, no deal? So. And were you, um, were you in a position to have answers even for yourselves at that time? Or were you still figuring it out? I think what we had to do, first of all, was to look at all the scenarios, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of, Irish funds managed in Ireland and selling into the UK or UK funds managed in Ireland selling UK selling to Europe um, we had Irish funds managed in the UK we had bear in mind at this point we had USITS and we have APES we have various regimes so we actually had to carry out a huge mapping exercise to work out um, and the industry were doing this as well. Um, so there was a lot of collaboration in relation to trying to assess the impacts. But in terms of the firms that propose, not just in funds, but, you know, there was a lot of inquiries. And then after that, I suppose we saw applications um, for people to set up. So I think within ESMA, we actually, if I remember now, and I hadn't really thought about this for a while, but... At the time, we were very supportive of ESMA doing some work um, on the way in which NCAs should um, address and treat the, the, the applications they were getting. There was an awful lot of media comment. The media comment didn't help, actually, because it probably exaggerated wildly what was going on. But there was a lot of concern that different approaches were being taken 
to different activities. And um, in a way, what was also interesting was we were, we were where were we in the CP86? We were pretty we were much nearly done. Yeah. Nearly done. Yeah, yeah, nearly done. So we felt actually in quite a good place, right? Um, the issue was always, I suppose, this focus on numbers. And for us, this focus on numbers was just a bit of a problem because it ignored the substance, if you like. Um, I mean, ultimately, you could put in numbers, but what are those people doing? And to us, it was more about ensuring that delegation worked. Yeah, numbers was a bit crude because it was... It was crude, yeah. But you can see as well sometimes where, where others might come from, you know what I mean, in terms of this view that there was no substance here because there was no numbers, if you, if you follow me. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, the opinions, yeah, I mean, they were difficult to negotiate as many major ESMA documents will, will tend to be. Um, overall, I think the outcome was okay. And it did refer to, you know, you had to address things on a niche scale complexity case and you had to assess individually. So those sort of things you want to see, I suppose. Um, and I thought it was terribly important to, for ESMA to recognise that there are smaller entities and you can't have a situation where you literally end up that only the big guys can survive. Um, I was going to say, you know, if we think about the, the future and the challenges for the, for the industry here, I guess, and the industry internationally, but also you think about the maturity of the industry now compared to what it was, one of the things that so we talk about, you know, nature scale complexity, talk about substance. Um, and you mentioned before about the newspaper coverage around Brexit not being especially helpful in the early days, because I think it, it did give this sense of competition amongst different member states. And they nearly had like a, a weekly bar chart where they tell you how many companies were relocating to one country versus another and created that kind of a, a worry about a, a race at the bottom. Whereas in fact, actually, ESMA focuses a lot now on supervisory convergence. So one of the fears of the firms is, well, you know, that Ireland is going to do one way, but actually another jurisdiction will undercut it and do it in a, a different way and make it easier in another jurisdiction. I don't know if that's actually how it works in practice. I, I get the sense that um, the story is one thing, but the reality is quite different. And there's not actually that much difference between how different jurisdictions approach different issues. So that you know, that, that idea of supervisory convergence is, is really something that's that's well underway at this stage. It is, but I do think, um, I do think the main challenge, one of the biggest challenges that the industry will face is delegation. Um, and I think, you know, I personally think funds are based on delegation, okay? And I, I think that's fine. Because if you have a financial service which involves authorization and supervision of both product and service provider, delegation makes sense, absolute sense. But if you go back, you know, the early years, our focus was on the Irish service providers and the status of the fund promoter. And that made sense at the time, I think, because, um, you know, if you recall, our model was based on authorization of fund administrators. They, we gave additional oversight roles to depositories. 
And both of those was, was a good outcome and they remain in place to today. Um, but the world changed. And then the Manco model is the way in which Europe approaches fund governance. So your fund is either self-managed and is therefore both a Manco and a product, or there is a Manco and Manco is the responsible entity. So that's the law, right? Um, and it's complex and it's all the more complex if it's a corporate fund. Um, but I do think that unless Irish Mancos can prove and demonstrate how they're able to manage their funds, then the Irish industry has a significant problem. And that's why I think it's, it's one of the biggest challenges. Having said that, I think it, the industry can. Um, and the opportunity, uh, well, actually the need to do that is going to come probably in the form of an ESMA peer review on Brexit-related authorizations. I mean, that's been well flagged, right? And actually, if you follow ESMA publications um, and, and the, the ESMA documents that are fully transparent, there was a recent discussion in the board about what ESMA might propose to the European Commission in relation to AIFMG, okay? And it included the need to clarify the delegation and substance requirements in the AFM and Usage Directive. So that's been called out in the board as something they should be saying to the European Commission and in particular in relation to the so-called white label business. And I think that's really significant. Um, but as I said, I do think, I do think that's, that's possible uh, to address, don't get me wrong, but I just think it is a huge challenge. So we will not then later in the year, I'm, maybe I, I assume we'll have the central bank providing the results of its review of CP86 implementation. And that's going to be of significant interest to all of us. Yeah. I think if, if I were involved in that as a regulator, I would want it to knock on the head substance as an issue forevermore in my I really want to, to, to put this to bed um, and find a way to do that. And particularly, not so much the post-Brexit authorizations, more those that are longer established under... A, a view of the world that was quite different and haven't caught up with how uh, much substance and, and staffing is required in, in mancos that would be authorised today, for example. I think that that's where the, the push is going to come. But I have every confidence in the industry here being able to find solutions for it. Um, oh, me too. Yeah, I sure do. They absolutely will. But, but that's what's going to happen. And pretending it's not going to be that case is, is not going to serve. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. We look forward to it. Um, tell me this, Martina. I, the challenges are one. As I look back on being a, the career as a regulator, one of the tricky things is the balance between when to say yes and when to say no. How did you approach that when you were met with proposals, either from an industry perspective or when you're working through a new regime or a new implementation? What, what was it that made you? push the buttons that would make you think I'm going to say yes here versus that doesn't feel right I'm going to say no um, well I suppose there's a few things and, and it probably applies to any decision making maybe um, I mean first off you have to understand what you've been asked and that's sometimes easier said than done obviously um, and you have to switch off from what else you're doing and analyze what you've got in front of you what's been proposed and sometimes those proposals were quite complex, so that wasn't easy, right? But secondly, um, I suppose you have to consider where it fits 
and where it doesn't fit with existing policy. And well, if it doesn't fit with the regulation, that's black and white, basically. But more often, it's more a question of does it fit with your policy? Um, and I suppose knowing how others approach similar issues was always something uh, that was very important to, to try and check out. Um, but of course, given the nature of our industry, and I mentioned earlier about, you know, we had a lot of professional funds. Sometimes there wouldn't be any similar regulatory uh, experience to call on. I think um, you need to know your strengths. Um, and importantly, you need to know your weak areas. Um, so that then you should try and draw on the strengths of others. Mm. Uh, in, in a large organization like Central Bank, that can be quite useful because you will probably have worked with a number of colleagues over the years and you'll, you might well know people who are good for you know, input into specific things. Um, and there's usually someone to call on. Uh, working yeah. as a team, working as a team, really important. Um, and you'll usually get better outcomes if you listen to all of the options. But I put my hand up. Uh, I didn't always. Sometimes that's easier said than done, you know, particularly as time of stress. Yeah, I and guess that there's got to be a willingness to say yes. You know, you, you, you've got to... Uh, probably the, <laughs> not all the time, but you've got, to, you've got to understand that sometimes yes is the right answer and that... Um, no, I think, I think that's right, Andy. I think, yeah, if people are asking you something that they would want to do which appears reasonable, Okay, um, but you have a lot of different complexities to work out. Yeah, you probably are saying, look, if this is ultimately, I can be happy that it's going to be in the best interest of the investors, right? Because when you're weighing the pros and cons, that's probably going to be, that's going to help you where you're going to land, right? If there's going to be any investor detriment, absolutely no question. You would be saying no. But I mean, if, if it is, and if it's novel, but yet you can see you can see the benefits. It is obviously you're going to try and work with that, okay? Um, but cost to industry is relevant too. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, ultimately, the investor uh, impact is going to be key. Um, if you were to uh, give one, a... sorry, one one last point, Danny. I think this is really important. If you can sleep on that issue, you'll probably do much better. It's amazing, you know, when you walk away and come back. It's usually very, very helpful. Yeah, the Sorry. regulator sometimes gets accused of sleeping and sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> it's be hard to get a, a quicker response. But if you were to give the industry two tips on how they could be better in engaging or help the regulator when they, for example, send in a policy submission or some sort of a submission to the regulator where they've been asked, what are the two things they can do to, to, to have a, be more effective in how they interact with the regulator um well one gets yeah various submissions when you're a regulator on, on that was a big side that was a big side with you. <laughs> <laughs> i think look um it'd be no surprise to anyone if i say you want informed informed um submissions you want informed engagement from from your stakeholders that's for sure um a lot of your submissions, right, might relate to proposed policy changes. And, you know, a submission which calls out the problems doesn't really present solutions. 
is a lot more difficult. You know, I mean, the, if you're making a policy proposal, right, it's, there's a number of reasons. It's either driven through a legislative amendment and you have to implement that, or it's something that you want to do and you've been, you know, for example, the, the current work on um, performance fees and on uh, error, the errors. I mean, that's something, you know, the bank would have wanted to do for quite some time. So you present your proposal. Well, you want the industry to come back and say, look, that doesn't work and this is why. Very clear and very calm. Yeah. But then they tell you what will work. If you get that, that's really powerful then because, you know, you have something you can work with. So yeah. offer solutions. Yeah. Offer solutions, you know. I think if, if um, sometimes submissions are, are about uh, practices, you know, that they maybe they, this different things, different practices have emerged. I would say there that my key tip to anyone who's addressing something in that sort of, uh, of that nature is to have evidence. Be precise. What is your concern? What is the thing you're seeing that's, maybe it's a change of approach or direction that hasn't been signaled and you want to understand it. It's just be entirely precise about what your problem is um, and have your evidence to support your submission. Really. Go ahead. I was going to say, have solutions and evidence. evidence. Easy as that. Prove it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I want to ask uh, two questions. One is about the Dear CEO letter that we're expecting out the back of the CPAD6 thematic review. Is it July? It is July, Sharon. But <laughs> whether the letter will come in July is another question. No. <laughs> it's going to enter. So. Um, and I also want to ask about um, some of the. Uh, conversations in and around the industry with regards to um, the relationship with the regulator when lawyers are involved. Uh, which one should we do first, CPD 6 or CEO letter or the one about involving the lawyer? Let's have the wrap up to the dear CEO, the CPD 6 yeah. um, Where did I get July from? I thought that letter was coming out this, oh, uh, by September. Any, any thoughts on, that, on what to expect in that Dear CEO letter, Martina? Um, do you know, I hadn't thought about that for some time, Shannon, because I hadn't worked on that so much, even before I left in, in the last few months. So I imagine it's going to be quite substantial because, you know, there's an awful lot of work went into that review. Um, I think... The industry will just want to see where's the number, you know, what's the number. Um, but I think there'll be a whole lot more. I hope there, I, I think there will be a lot more about um, what actually is the expectations, the central bank expectations under CP86. And if people read that um, guidance document, you know, it's quite substantial. It's very clear, but I'm not sure that people really now, I don't know this, all right, because I, have, I've no, uh, I haven't looked at any mancos and how they're actually, you know, overseeing their delegates. But if you look at what the expectations are set out in the guidance, it is quite detailed about the roles of the DPs and what they should be doing in relation to their own area of activity, even to the extent, um, you know, being involved in the appointment of the delegates, to what extent have they really looked at the policies and procedures of the delegate, which they now own, by the way, and I wonder did they really do that? Um, 
because going back to our comments on delegation and how Ireland shows that we, um, you know, we do manage funds. Funds that are managed in Ireland are managed in Ireland. Um, that's going to be really important. Those sort of things that you do own the policies and procedures of the delegate. So I'm really going to be, that's where I'll be looking to yeah. see what, where the comments are in the context of not so much the numbers of people involved, but what are they actually doing and how much are they doing? How much are they getting into the things that the bank expects them to get into? Yeah, I think you're right, Martina. I think the Dear CEO letter will be pretty substantial because the regulator has flagged from a very early stage that we're going to do the review. They put a lot of effort and time and resources, um, both in terms of the teams performing, but also get the sense of, at a senior leadership level as well into it. So I think Absolutely. that they will. And I think you're entirely right that there will be a lot of industry focus on what the number is. But actually, I think the, the, the Dear CEO letter will have a lot of content about good practices identified, possibly poor practices identified. Talk a lot about the OE role and how they're seeing DPs for investment management and fund risk management actually go about do what they do. But, but I think that a lot of the noise will just be around uh, the number and then you're gonna, you're, that's gonna miss probably what, what some of the best content is gonna be. So if we were to just wrap it up in a sentence, uh, you're expecting the Dear CEO letter to be quite substantial on boring Martinez. Yeah. Substantial. I just got the word like. Is it? A, <laughs> but I think. Go ahead, Martina. No, I was just going to say. I I think for the good firms, you know, um, and there's many of them, they will take the good practice and seek to to apply it, and they will see why they need to do that, and I think particular, um, particularly those who are managing third party funds because there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. I've just mentioned what Esna said, right? You will recall that the UK have said that they are going to look very carefully at this category of Manco. And after Woodford, they couldn't do anything else but, but that, you know? So um, I think that's going to be really, really important, not for, for everyone, but for Ireland as a jurisdiction, actually, this review and how people react to it is just going to be so important. If we um, shift gears a wee bit and just uh, look over at some of the conversations and exchange that have been taking place um, amongst advisory firms, law firms, and uh, the funds industry, there's an, uh, uh, a blind spot, I would call it, in the area of communicating between the CBI and lawyers in particular. Um, and Danny and I have spoken about this and debated it for quite some time. Uh, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it, Martina. Um, Danny would position it as uh, the regulator appreciates and respects very much the difference between should you do this versus can you do this? And yet lawyers are trained and developed and spend a lifetime understanding can we do this? And if we can't do it, then what else can we do so that we can do it? Um, would you have a similar sentiment to Zenny in that particular area? And would you have any advice uh, for lawyers who clearly want to do right by their, by their clients and improve their relationship with the regulator as well? What can they do to make that go a little bit more smoothly? Well, yes. there's a lot in that question, Shannon. Um, let me think. I guess if you are the intermediary, which they are, I suppose, between 
the regulator and the regulated, um, you're probably always going to be in a little bit of, you know, a difficult situation because you are that intermediary. So in some cases, they have to take a lot of that on the chin, maybe. Um, but I, th- I, I go back to the point where you say, what do industry do well and what they don't? I think if you're a legal firm and you have difficulties, you know, and um, I think, again, trying to explain to the regulator about why that difficult, you know, being very clear what your difficulty is, going back to the evidence, if you like. Um, I think that's probably your best approach. So, look, different people will have different views. Um, I, when I worked in, in authorization, always liked to have direct communication with the person who was going to be managing the fund. If there was a query and if there was a policy issue to address. And sometimes legal firms, well, they would prefer if you dealt directly with them. And I can understand that. But I think to make your decisions, it was always better if you could have a good chat with somebody who was actually running the thing and get a clear understanding because prospectus language can be very broad and sometimes not sufficient for you to to really understand what was being proposed. So I suppose to answer your question, the legal firms will always have a problem because of what they do, that's bottom line. But I think the good ones really try their hardest to have a good relationship with all levels of the organization. So the people who are you know, reviewing applications, the more senior people, and then the even more senior people. It's not easy, but if they are calm and rational, you know, um, I think they can, they can be somewhat successful, but it, it isn't, there's probably a variety of approaches one can take. And that's the only one I would, think of is as I said to you be very clear as to what the issue is have the evidence to back that up and it's not just a feeling feelings don't work well feelings don't work it's not easy Martina but that's why they get paid the big bucks so we well I didn't say (laughs) now we've had a very wide-ranging conversation from all way back when um right I want to know what she misses and what she thinks the future is for the CPI can I Martina (laughs) what do you miss most about uh, working with the CBI? Oh, I, I miss a lot, I suppose, Shannon, but not enough to make me regret leaving. Um, so I said to you at the beginning that when I joined, and this was before there was ever a funds industry, it was a fantastic place to work. I always felt that, even when people you know, were difficult, some people were difficult to work with. To me, uh, I, ne- I always enjoy going to work, right? So that's pretty good going over all those years that I went there. Um, and that was as much about the people that were there. Um, I think there is, there's always difficult people, we all know that, but there is a huge sense of public interest, uh, the public spirit, and, and actually working in, in the public interest. And that's, that's really good, a, a good situation to be in yeah. um, if you're working there. So. I miss that. I miss, I suppose, being involved. I mean, I would have been always in the middle of uh, what was happening. So sometimes I can see things coming through from Esma and say, oh, I would have enjoyed that, you know. But you know what? It's nice being on the other side as well and sort of, um, you know, looking at what's coming through 
and assessing, you know, how is that going to impact on people or how will they apply it? So in other words, I suppose I'm saying that because I'm still now involved in funds, it's wonderful. Um, and I don't have all of those other responsibilities I had in that role. So in one sense, no, it's, it's good. It's good. Uh, so that leads me nicely, actually, because I didn't want to talk about your new role. Um, but before I do, uh, you are, you know, I'm going to say you're probably the foremost expert on funds regulation in the country, and probably one across the EU. You know more about the technical side of regulation than anybody I've ever come across. You must have had other opportunities outside of the central bank during your time. Uh, were you ever tempted to, to move before you did do now? <laughs> Um, well, you must remember, Danny, I, I worked part-time for quite a lot of years and the bank were very accommodating, very accommodating. That was something, because at the time, you know, it wasn't as mainstream working part-time as it was. Um, so being able to, you know, raise my family and still do this really interesting job, right? Um, for sure, one wouldn't leave that easy, easily. The second thing is I always had a, a nice long commute um, and between my work and getting there and as I said raising my family here um, I was pretty busy so did I I wasn't no I mean I liked the whole idea of being a regulator right I liked the I didn't think I would like industry so much um, I liked what we stood for. I liked why we were there. Uh, I, I, I just felt um, culturally it was right for me. So uh, I won't say there was a huge mm-hmm. of interest uh, to move, but never anything that really tempted me, no, until I, until I left. You know, sorry, I'm just getting rid of that. Um, sorry. So, so is that fair enough answer to your question, Danny? Well, Correct answer was well because I got to work with you, Danny. Because <laughs> you left, Danny. Have to do a bit you of magic. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, talk about. So the tell us about your current role then, director of funds in uh, the Institute Bank, and I'm interested in the new accreditation or, uh, for for funds professionals as well. Yeah, so um, I suppose if, if when I was in the bank, so I worked on funds, as you know, like funds, funds, and nothing but funds for many years. And I suppose over the last four years, then I, I went on to the broader markets agenda. It's pretty broad. So when the IOB opportunity came up, it just just seemed right. Um, it was a part-time role. And after working full-time for you know a number of years, um, I know I was part-time for a long time, but then I moved to full-time. And then, so this was another part-time role. And, but the key thing is, it was very aligned with what I had worked on as a regulator. So, you know, I talked about the challenges uh, facing the industry uh, in the context of, of delegation. And I mentioned, like, the, the key part, one really key part of addressing that challenge is an educated workforce. So it's like Ireland saying to the world, we know funds and our people know funds and, and we have people who can lead and manage funds. I, I think that's a huge part of addressing this um, challenge that we will face. And a key part, if you like, of what I suppose the central bank are doing in relation to CPAC6. 
So it's having people who just know what they're doing and they're well-educated. So IOB, right, the Institute of Banking, they have a strategic objective uh, to develop this education, that compelling uh, education proposition for the fund sector. And earlier this year, with the support from Irish funds, uh, IOB introduced the Accredited Funds Professional, which is a designation for funds industry professionals. And I, I'm fairly sure that's the first in the world for, for the funds industry. Um, it is a government initiative because it was included in the Ireland for Finance strategy. And to, um, so you can see, if you like, where I, I just felt this is just right for me. Um, signing up to the designation is an expression of a commitment to lifelong learning. And, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but like throughout, and, and you will know this, Danny, from the time we worked together, you're constantly learning, aren't you, when you, when you work in fund regulation? Every day is so, a school day, Martina. Every day is a school day. And for people then that sign up to the designation, they are saying that. They're expressing their commitment to lifelong learning. So the onus is then on IOB uh, to ensure that the material that's offered to those uh, accredited funds professionals as CPG, that it's relevant and it's high quality. And it ensures that um, the holders of the designation, that they're up to date, they're educated on the changes and, and the developments. So legal and regulatory, yes, but also operating environment, you know, changes in that. Um, and staying on top um, and educated and all of that, that's not easy, right? But the designation is, that's the purpose behind it. Yeah. So as you, you, I think you can see why that would appeal to me. Yeah, uh, well, I can do, absolutely. And, and as an industry here, it, I, it's probably a sign of the maturity of the industry, the, the seriousness with which we take our jobs, that it's you know, a commitment to lifetime learning and, and being on top of our, uh, our topics and, and doing the best that we can, always in the interest of investors, because ultimately if the investors do well, then our industry well, and if investors do poorly and funds fall over because they're mismanaged or whatever. Absolutely, Danny. And I, I'm really uh, increasingly, I think, impressed, um, and particularly in recent years, at the level of professionalism uh, in the industry. And it continues to grow among Irish firms. Uh, you see that, actually, if you look at the quality of the output um, from the industry position papers or, you know, the papers and the publications from the individual firms. And I think that most definitely is something to be very proud of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so that brings us to the end. I think we better wrap up as a, a lot of <laughs> things to have, but I had so many questions. Uh, I have one left. Do you have any, uh, any more, Shannon, you? I have a lot, but we're at an hour. <laughs> so, All right, okay. I was uh, gonna suggest that we bring Martina back for round two, maybe in September after the Dear Speaker Letters Ah, uh, yes. And I wanted to talk about the maturity of the industry, the f sort of the interest yeah. in the industry from financial, from central bankers and liquidity management and leverage. September is just on the heels of SEER as well. So it could be two or three things. Uh, that would be great to have you back, Martina. Well, thank you, Shannon. Um, yeah, I, I, there, you're, you're quite right. And Danny is quite right. There is a lot. Uh, the macro prudential focus on funds been a lot of noise um well no noise is the wrong word actually there's a lot of indications 
um, that there is going to be continued focus there. And it, it all makes sense. The account of an industry the size of the Irish industry without um, receiving that attention, it's just sensible. So on that note, I'm going to wrap up the podcast. I'm going to keep my last question for your next appearance, Martina. Uh, <laughs> it's a question about your legacy at the central bank. So I'm going to let you prepare for that one. Uh, okay. Uh, we hopefully catch you again in September. It has been wonderful having you on. I've uh, enjoyed the conversation very much. Good luck in your new role at uh, the Institute of Banking and with the uh, funds professionals. So it should be very successful because the nature of the industry and the individuals having it here and because of your good self as well. Uh, so thanks again. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of the Equest podcast. We look forward to catching you next time on the Equest podcast. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Aquas podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on RECs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.